You're listening to Exploring Chiropractic. I'm Nathan Cashin, and welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Mark Chrislip, host of the QuackCast. Dr. Chrislip has been a practicing infectious disease specialist in Portland, Oregon since 1990, and in addition to hosting the QuackCast, he's helped found the Society for Science-Based Medicine. In part one, we talked about his issues with chiropractic and alternative medicine, discuss what biases an infectious disease doctor might have, and talked about his growing online empire of blogs, podcasts, books, and compendiums for pus. In part two, I ask him whether he's actually been to a chiropractor. We discuss the placebo effect and the importance of risk versus benefit when choosing a treatment. And we talk a little about the Society for Science-Based Medicine and how it's so important to recognize how we can fool ourselves. I hope you enjoy part two of my interview with Dr. Chris Lip. Have you ever been to a chiropractor? No. Will you ever consider going to one? I can't think of why. Yeah. I don't have back. I don't have back. Oh, I did actually. I had a C spine disc for about nine months. Uh, that was miserable. But uh, eventually, it got fixed the old-fashioned way with a knife. Oh, really? Yeah. Under surgery. Yeah. Best day of my life was when I woke up without any cervical radiculopathy. You cannot imagine how good it feels. <laughs> I've had a lot of medical problems in my life, but the one I have sympathy for patients more than any other is nerve root pain. Mm -hmm. It's there all the time. It's miserable. It never gets better. I could never take narcs for it because I was working. So yeah. I could and it's just uh don't want to be Doctor House, yeah. Oh no. Nine months of misery until it got so bad they fixed it. And when I woke up pain free. <sighs> but no, I don't think I'd ever go. I don't see a reason why I would need to. Mm -hmm. Do you talk much with chiropractors? Have you ever interviewed one or or discussed how they? Practice? Uh, yes, on and off over the years. Yeah. Usually, it's in social situations where you're polite and you don't want to cause a fuss. You know, I mean, that's I my guess, favorite place to cause a fuss. Yeah, it's not mine. I mean, yeah. you know, like right now, we, you and I are having a, a civil conversation, and I have no, I honestly have no uh, urge to be an asshole. I mean. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I mean, you can. You can be aggressive and, and belligerent, and it serves no useful purpose. It's fun to write that way. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, there's a great deal of fun in coming up with a clever way to say something written. But when I'm talking to people, I mean, we have a different approach in the world, I'm sure, and that's fine. I'll be happy to talk with you, and I'm always going to be civil and nice. That's how I tend to try and be. Your writing and, is your writing is very aggressive. Yeah. You don't pull any punches and it's very to the point. No. And, you know, if you ask me a direct question, I'll give you a direct answer, but I'm going to be nice about it because mm. I like to get along with people. But no, I'd never go to a chiropractor. I don't have a need to and I don't think it would work. And if I had low back pain, it would probably help. But, you know, I would probably just do the conservative thing of nothing and lie on my back and take some time because most get better. Regression to the mean. Yeah. If chiropractic could help with that quicker, would that be enough reason? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if there are any studies that show, that show the time frame yeah, when it goes away. 
I haven't read that for a while. It's been a couple of years, so it's kind of faded. My memory is that it's as good as other modalities for relieving low back pain. But I have to admit, I'm a, my uh, my uh, uh, it's been a while since I've read it, and the only stuff I can keep active in my brain is infectious disease stuff. Mm. But yeah, I mean, if I thought I could get me better faster, I'd go. But I mean, I always worry about. Uh, 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 the very real complications of of uh, someone messing with my spine. I mean, it seems to me that things are set up. Okay, relax, relax, relax. There, let's uh, rupture of a tibial artery. Now, I know that the chiropractic literature denies that that is a problem, but my reading of the literature suggests that, especially with neck stuff, uh, people do get vertebral tears occasionally after this. It seems I wouldn't take the risk for what would be marginal benefit for something that would be popping my spine. Is that risk as great as the as the risk of iatrogenic, you know, fatalities in the hospital? I just found another article yesterday yeah. that numbered it at four hundred thousand a year. Deaths are caused by medical treatment. Oh yeah, I mean, I sit on our quality council, and I'm very proud of the work we've done to decrease complications and deaths. And in my, my, uh, my hospital system, we all, since doing a lot of science and evidence-based interventions, we estimate in the system we have prevented over the recent numbers, like 250 deaths over the last five years and over a thousand infections Mm. by doing all these quality interventions. Medicine is dangerous, and I'm the first to admit that. Uh, but also, it's always a matter – it's not the absolute risk of the danger, but it's the risk versus the benefit. You come in with an acute heart attack. What we're going to do to you is dangerous and risky and could kill you. But it's a hell of a lot better than staying at home with your big heart attack. If you come in with a dissecting aneurysm, you're in a world of hurt. If you don't treat it, you're dead. If you go into the hospital, you can get into serious problems from what we do with you. But the risk is greater than the benefit. Uh, if you have alternative modalities that are equal to chiropractic with less risk, just going to a physical therapist and having a massage, um, I go with that, even though it's a tiny risk. Hmm. But hospitals are dangerous places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I try to avoid them as much as I can. Oh, yeah. I'm in them all day. I know what we can do to people. Uh but I also know all the things we do to prevent things from happening. Yeah. But it's not just – it's just not the absolute death you have to bear in mind. It's the benefit you gain from dealing with very dangerous medical conditions. And I think we're – at least in my school, we talk about those risks as well. But the numbers that are thrown out are one in about a million adjustments, cervical yeah. adjustments cause vertebral artery dissection. And – is, is that a large enough risk? Well, what's the benefit? I wonder if it depends on, on what you're treating. Yeah. I mean, having seen big strokes in young people, how devastating it is. There are things I would not take a one in a million risk for. Mm. I wouldn't take brain insult as a one in a million risk. You know, it's just... Doesn't, you know, I remember the one I saw as a girl who overstretched in her yoga class, and as she was overstretching, she tore her vertebral artery. Oh, and it really? Was, yeah, it was a devastating, devastating um, um, 
problem. If the risk was, uh, you know, a little headache, yeah. Uh, but strokes, man, if you take care of a couple of those, you know, there's there's certain diseases that no that you don't want to ever have to have as a doctor because you've seen how devastating and brain insults are just not on my to do list. It's not worth the risk. The benefit that many chiropractors claim is that upper cervical adjustments can can correct many different issues from indigestion to allergies to, well, D.D. Palmer yeah. adjusted the cervical neck to cure deaf, deafness, according to the story. Yeah, that's uh, that's an uh, interesting story. <laughs> and I don't know how. Like, If you could tell me how adjusting the neck could cure deafness as a basic principle, I would be interested. I would too. I'm hoping some listeners can... Can shed some yeah, light on that because uh, it's like and many of these alternative medicines have very interesting uh, origin stories, kind of like you know comic books and you know you get bit by a radioactive spider, or you see that a bird has a broken wing and something an owl, and then you see that something in its eye. Oh look, there's the birth of iridology. And ear acupuncture started because somebody's back pain got better after they um, uh, uh, burned their ear. And he came right. and he came up with ear acupuncture as a consequence. Uh, these don't seem to have a lot of basic principles to guide them. If you ask me, I would love to know how how adjusting the neck could cure deafness, um, or even if that's true. I don't know. Is that really a true story, or is that apocryphal? You know, it's, <laughs> it's repeated so often. the yeah. The only variation that I heard on it was a version in which Dee Dee Palmer didn't invite the janitor in and and have this hypothesis of if I adjust here, something might change. Yeah. But rather, the janitor was a joke teller, and he loved conversing with the other tenants in the building. And Dee Dee was reading a big, heavy anatomy book and went out and listened to a great joke that, uh, that the janitor told. And as he was laughing, Dee Dee slapped him on the back and said, that was a, that was a good one. And that's when the janitor heard a pop in his neck and the next day was able to hear through that ear again. That's the only other version that I've heard. Huh, I never um, heard that one. I don't think many people are going to agree with that, that that's, yeah. that's true. So there, there are a few you know, different versions of how that might have come about. But yeah, but yeah he was able to hear again. It, doesn't just, it just doesn't seem like the good basis of a medical intervention. I kept looking during our, my second quarter of anatomy, during head and neck, uh, for the nerve that goes from cervical vertebrae up to the ear and uh, couldn't find it. Yeah. So, as I said, I've been listening to QuackCast for quite a while, but you don't only do QuackCast. You've no. got, you're, you're an editor for sciencebasedmedicine.org. Yeah. You write for Medline. You've got... Med- Medscape. Medscape, sorry. You've got the Gabata Pus blog and podcast. Yeah. And now you've got the so- Society for Science-Based Medicine that you are helping run. Are you the lead on that? I've been doing, me and Jan, uh, I've been doing the lion's share of the work. Mm-hmm. I wrote the website and been doing most of the blogging, et cetera, on it. Jan's doing, she's a lawyer, uh, Jan Bellamy. She has a, she's been doing the legal aspects of this sort of thing. As a student with like 30 hours, 30 credit hours of, of load right now, I have trouble just, you know, cooking food. How do you manage all of this, your whole online enterprise? Uh, very poorly. 
<laughs> but you're I, prolific. I mean, every week you've got an article coming out. You've got a podcast uh, quite regularly. I mean, it'll be a weekend where you yeah. release four or five. I have a fair amount of dead time that I always have my P, uh, MacBook Air with. So like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm um, at work. I, you, when you get a consult, you send the resident off to see it. The resident works them up and comes to you. So I have a, maybe I have an hour to kill while the resident is seeing a patient. So um, if, if I don't have other work to do at the hospital, I'll write something. Um, I don't watch TV anymore mm. except for uh, Blazer games. Uh, that's really it. I mean I don't watch television. I My chair in the living room is sit where I can't see the TV. And when the TV is on, I just sit there and work. And I uh, – Basically, work from when I get up to when I go to sleep. Amazing. It's, pretty, it's fun and I enjoy it, but it's just I don't have much dead time. How much do you sleep per night? I usually go to bed at 10.30 and get up between 6 and 7. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. You're doing better than I am. Uh, well, you're, <laughs> the older you get, the less you can tolerate a lack of sleep. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how I did it when I was in my 20s. Yeah, I, residency. And oh, yeah. Those people working 80-hour weeks and double yeah. shifts. Oh, yeah. I couldn't do that now. So I just keep busy, you know? What's your inspiration for a blog post? It's amazing. The stuff just sort of comes in. If you keep it open, if you keep your filters open, and I have, like I say, I have uh, uh, Google and PubMed um, um, alerts. And then for my infectious disease stuff, it's just what you see every day is mind-bogglingly cool. Mm. I mean, it's it's amazing. I've been blogging infectious three times a week in infectious diseases since I think two thousand and eight, and I almost never, I very rarely have had to repeat myself. That much variety, really, it's really amazing. So yeah. you, don't, you don't ever get bored. Any thoughts on the uh, this spread of a polio-like uh, disease in California that they've determined you know, is not polio or? Yeah, I don't know much. I just know about what I read on a Medscape, so I haven't heard much about it. I'm sure the CDC is all over it, but uh, uh, I haven't. I don't have any extra. I don't have an, uh, any special pipelines into knowledge outside of the internet. Yeah, that's been interesting. We've discussed that a few times in class. Yeah, ho- hopefully they find it something that isn't coming our way. It's- what was the uh, what was the inspiration for FSSBM for the Society for Science Based Medicine? Uh, basically, I think that well, not just me, but us and the folks at Science Based Medicine. Basically, that we're an underrepresented. How do you want to say cult? <laughs> 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 we're an underrepresented cult uh, in the world. I mean, if you go to in the, in the in the skeptical world and that stuff, there's very little about science-based medicine, and there's very few of us who have an interest in it. Um, compare if you take your average, you know, skeptical inquirer, there might be an article. Harriet Hall writes in in the Skeptic magazine. You'll see Harriet's, but it's you know Bigfoot, UFOs, and Kennedy conspiracies, and all the the big ones. And in medicine, most docs are too busy. And although the IDSA has a lot of interest in vaccines, for example, they don't have a big thing that I've ever found about combating anti-vaccine issues. And so I think there's a void in both organization and uh, and focus 
in this area. And so I thought we'd start this in an attempt to have better focus on areas of critical thinking as it applies to medicine. So and it was a... So bringing that group of, of skeptics into science-based medicine. Yeah. Well, more take critical thinking out of our area and into the rest of the world. Mm. Yeah, uh, doctors are just horrible to organize, so... Uh, I thought, well, we'll just give it a shot and see what happens. Seems like it's taken off quite a bit. It's, I'm pleased. I'm, we figured we'd get two or 300 members in the first two years. I think we got 500 uh, 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 people, at least 500 on the, uh, who have registered for the website. In a country of 300 million, eh, we can go farther. But it's very reassuring. How many followers do you have on Twitter? I don't know. 600 maybe? Okay. 800, something like that. And do you, do you keep track of subscriptions to the podcasts? No, I am very bad at all those sorts of things. I, you know, there's a, you have a choice between producing and consuming. And, and I just tend to throw things out there and forget about them, which is not a good way to do stuff. You have tried for relentless self-promotion. Uh, I don't spend – I don't Twitter enough. I, I totally do not get Facebook. Uh, Facebook, 10 tattoos, mark me as uh, an old geezer because I don't understand either of them. Uh, and I, you know, I don't do that. So I tend to produce stuff and throw it out there and just let people do what they want. I don't pay enough attention to that stuff. Mm-hmm. Probably helps, probably helps keep a sane mind with that yeah. and all that stuff. Um, I spend a lot of time on on social media, probably more than I should, especially while I'm in grad school. I mean, come on. But I'm on YouTube. I'm reading comments on you know YouTube videos about chiropractic, and I hear a lot uh, people commenting and saying, you know, chiropractic students or chiropractors just have to be incredibly stupid or just shockingly ignorant or just devoid of, scientifically th- of scientific thinking to believe in this stuff. I mean, would you go that far as to say that they're just not intelligent? Uh, no, I think it depends on, like all things, there's great homo- heterogeneity in the field. So I, I, there are those like uh, Sam Homola, that's how you pronounce his name, uh, who um, uh, ha- wants nothing to do with subluxations and mm-hmm. uh, which energy is it? <sighs> innate innate intel- intelligence. Yeah, thank you. There's so many different terms for these energies, I can't remember them. Yeah, and he's a chiropractor. Yeah, he's okay. a chiropractor and he wants nothing to do with that. Uh, and then there's people who uh, uh, are strongly anti vaccine and will uh, treat your asthma with chiropractic. Mm-hmm. And there's a great variety. So I, I, you know, we had a friend whose boyfriend was a chiropractor, and he was a nice guy who did reasonable things, and it's variable. Just like they're goofy ass doctors, and they're really good doctors. <laughs> they're all right, you know. Was it? Have you seen Doctored, the movie that came out a year or two ago? Yeah. yeah. I think it's in that one that they have medical doctors talking about. You know, vaccines cause autism and homeopathy is, you know, my preferred prescription. Um, yeah. yeah. It is, I, I appreciate that you say that. It is more of the variety of individuals. Because when I'm in school and I'm sitting next to classmates, 
they're incredibly educated. They are sharp as can be. I mean, I can talk about just anything with, you know, within the medical field or chiropractic or whatever it might be. And and astrophysics, you know, pick whatever. And they have a pretty solid foundation and, and knowledge in that. And so it's difficult for me to, you know, to hear that chiropractors in general must be diluted. I don't think you can do. That's why I said earlier, I don't know why people use alternative medicine. You can. It's what the individual, given individual. I don't think you can speak to chiropractors as a whole as anything. Mm. Because you versus, and I'm sure there's that gullible shit for brains who sits in the back. Uh, there's certainly, I know them in my world. Um, <laughs> They exist in all fields and all times. Unfortunately, uh, education does not necessarily mean critical thinking, and education doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person. Education just means you're educated. And so, um, you know, chiropractors are probably as a, a group that I would enjoy having dinner, uh, individuals that I'd probably have a great time having dinner with, and people that I'd want to uh, run away from as fast as I could. And that applies to every group of people I know. As I said earlier, it's not the person from my mind, and I kind of keep this in mind. It's the concepts. It's not the sinner. It's the sin. And there's great variability in human beings. Is evidence-based chiropractic an oxymoron? No. The question is, do you act on the evidence? Mm-hmm. You can have evidence-based uh, – I, I probably should have said this at the beginning because – Harriet Hall tends to write most of the chiropractic stuff for science-based medicine. And since she's always ahead of me on that, I will tell you – I should have told you this up front. I don't read that stuff as much as I read other areas because it's kind of Harriet's um, bigger area of interest. And I tend to, for whatever reason, have fallen more into acupuncture. And I tend to be writing a lot about that lately. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, What was the question? So, oxymoron. Oh, so no. No, the question is, is do you then act on the evidence? And if you got good studies that show something is not effective, do you abandon it? That tends in the alternative medicine world tends to be resistant to change on the basis of evidence. Harriet had an article recently where she took an article from somewhere, some chiropractic blog on the 10 best papers from the past year. Yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah, and she discussed each one of them in detail and, and explained how this one may not have had a large, a large enough sample size, how this one came to a questionable conclusion. Um, and I would agree that it's difficult to do quality chiropractic research. I mean, to get a large sample size to blind patients, that's a challenge. Yeah, you don't need to put the word chiropractic in that sense. It's difficult to do high-quality research in everything. Yeah, any kind of and research. It, yeah, and so, you know, if, it's, if people care enough, it's amazing what gets done. Um, um, I just have to be a little obsessed about it. I think quality research is possible in any place that sets their mind to it. I mean, the NCAAM, or NCCAM, mm-hmm. funds alternative medicine research. Someone comes up in a teaching institution with a good, uh, it's there, it's just hard and difficult, but it's that way for medicine, for anything. Money's tight and research is hard. 
It's why I don't do it. <laughs> and the money, money, unfortunately, I think is one of the big factors in, in creating a large quality study. And that's what's great about the NCCAM, I think. And yeah. my school has a study that's just wrapping up. We did one on low back pain. We were currently in the process of doing one on cervicogenic headache. I think I've heard you say, though, that the NCCM should be absolved. We shouldn't be putting money into alternative therapy research. Well, to date, they spent, oh, what was the sum? I forget. A serious chunk of change and showed no benefit. Showed the, and, you know, their, their um, mandate by the congressman was to show that these things were effective. What's his name? Um, the guy who funded it. I'm blanking. I don't know who Harkin. behind it. Harkin. Senator Harkin, he got funding for it with the express purpose that it's supposed to show these things have benefit, not to show whether or not they work, but to show they did work. And they've not shown anything has worked. From a scientific method viewpoint, isn't that biased already to say you have to show that it works? Oh, yeah. That's why it's not a good reason to fund an agency. So if they had come out and say, let's look at whether or not this works and fund it with that purpose... Yeah, he was upset yeah, right. because they haven't shown anything works. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it doesn't work. That's life. Hmm. How long has it been funded? <sighs> to my knowledge, have, has it been that long? Less I'd than 10 have, years? I'd have to Google that. I don't know. Yeah. How, how long does it take for positive results to come out? Uh, you can do most studies in four or five years. Mm-hmm. If you can get enough patients and write them up. Uh, what's her name? Eugenie... Uh, Mazeriak, I think her name is. She wrote a nice article in Skeptical Inquirer going through all the funding and results of the NCCAM in the last year or two. Unfortunately, SI just never puts their stuff online so people can read it. They're old school paper. Mm. Hard to get a hold of. Yeah. Well, I want to wrap it up. I uh, don't want to take too much of your time. I want to give you the chance. Talk to me. Talk to other chiropractic students. What, what would your advice be? <laughs> I don't know. So I, let's, let's, uh, let's clarify I mean, this. I mean, I, I think I know what your advice would be to a student who's considering chiropractic. But how about a student that's in chiropractic I school so. right now and, you know, wants to do their best to be evidence-based, to, to practice based on the science? What do you tell them? If I say anything, I think this is true not only of chiropractic students, of anybody, is, is to understand how bad you think, to really understand the cognitive biases, confirmation bias, to understand the, all those uh, ways that we find um, um, results where none exist. I mean, my favorite article, my epiphany on that was an article in the American Journal of Medicine years ago called Spiraling Empiricism. And it was an article on all the different cognitive problems people make medically in infectious diseases to make them think they're doing something. And it's a very, it's a classic in my world for bad thinking. If I were to tell anybody, chiropractic student or naturopathic student or medical student, uh, Learn how bad you think and apply it to you, yourself. But most people don't do that. That's the problem that I would hope to fix someday. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This has really been enjoyable to talk with you. Oh, no problem. 
And that wraps up my interview with Dr. Mark Chrislip, edgydoc.com, host of The Quack Cast, and co-founder of the Society for Science-Based Medicine, which you can find at sfsbm.org. Thanks again for listening to Exploring Chiropractic. Please visit iTunes, check out the podcast feed there, rate it, leave comments, or head over to YouTube and find the Exploring Chiropractic YouTube channel where you can see a full unedited version of of this interview and leave comments for me there as well. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and stay tuned for an upcoming interview with students from the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. Thanks again for listening. Get back to school. We'll talk to you later.